Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Our first reading comes from Jonah. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Our next reading comes from Matthew chapter 14. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. All right, 19 years ago, 2004, I was the worship leader slash lifeguard (laughs) slash whatever else needed at New Life Ranch. Anybody, any New Life Ranch people in here? Okay, yeah, a number of us. Uh, I want to tell you about the night that summer of 2004 when the rains came. It was an epic night. Because I was worship leader slash lifeguard and not a counselor, I, at the, in the evenings, had time on my hands. And after all the kids in the cabins had gone to bed, I was sitting with my friend, Ben Beswick, and we were eating a snack in the canteen, and we heard the rain come. And it came like in a squall. It was powerful. And we look outside, and it looks like we're, just, we're in the middle of this deluge. And this began the night that Ben and I saved New Life Ranch. The original camp in Colcord, Oklahoma, 74338, is, is built right on, the, on Flint Creek, and staff parking was right next to uh, the creek, and we're watching the creek waters rise. It's getting a little scary, and we were heroic that night. God had given us, like, like super ability to run faster, jump higher. Uh, we walked in, and we, we surreptitiously came in and notified counselors, hey, you need to go and move your car. They were crying, thanking us for saving their vehicles. <laughs> I mean, we continue to get thank you notes over this. And, uh, but, but as we, we made our way to the other side of camp, there was a ramp leading down into a basement that was underneath some of the cabins. And uh, the, the ramp had a door at the end of it, and the door was piling up with water. There had been a drain at the bottom that was clogged up. 
And uh, it was like a, a very powerful moment. It's kind of like that scene in Shawshank Redemption where Andy Dufresne has snuck out of the jail and he strips off of the prison clothes. And there's that shot from above as the lightning strikes and he's a free man. There's a group of kids from one of the cabins sitting on the porch. They're watching this whole scene and they see me look at this water piling high. It's going to flood the basement if I don't take drastic action. So I rip off my shirt and I dive into the waters and I, fr I clear the drain and I saved New Life Ranch. Now, that's probably a slight overstatement, but I do have a really fond memory of that. The next day we came out and uh, the, 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 the creek had risen, risen so much that the islands across the creek had disappeared. We were cleaning up damage for the weeks to come. Water can be so, so great, refreshing in the summer, and can also be so very destructive. Water at the right times, in the right context, in the right proportions is a gift. Jesus picks up this, this great water imagery in the scriptures. He said, whoever believes in me, streams of living water are going to flow out of that person. Uh, we, we read in the, in the scriptures, especially the prophets, these images of streams in the desert bringing refreshing to the thirsty. That's a really good thing. In the prophet Ezekiel's work and in the book of Revelation, we have this image of God's throne and flowing from the throne is a river bringing the blessings of heaven to all of the earth. At the right times, the right context, the right proportions, water is a great and good thing. But at the wrong times, the wrong proportions, the wrong context, water can be incredibly destructive. Those who've had storm damage recently, when there's a hole in your roof and the water is pouring in, you know just how destructive that water can be. In the scriptures, we think about the destructive power of water, and we certainly go to Genesis, and we recall the flood when God flooded the earth. We go to Exodus when the children of Israel are, are running from slavery. God has liberated them, and the waters of the Red Sea come down on the chariots and the, the army of Pharaoh. Uh, we see in the Psalms how David uses this language of the waters coming up to my neck as a metaphor for feeling overwhelmed. We are not meant to be in the water forever, and so when the water gets out of control, out of proportion, it threatens our very life. In the ancient Near East, the accumulated body of water that was the sea had a lot of mythological meaning and imagery, had powerful connotations. The sea itself was said to embody evil, be the embodiment of evil, or evil embodied inhabited the seas. If you go to the ancient text, the Babylonian myth, the Enuma Elish, we have the evil that is in the sea characterized by this, this character Tiamat. In Ugaritic circles, there was Prince Sea, or there was Judge River. In the Bible, we have references to Leviathan, or sometimes it's called Rahab. It's a sea serpent or a sea dragon of some kind. And the bottom line is that in the ancient world, the ancient Near East, the sea equals mayhem, evil, chaos. Now, importantly, at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, it says that in the new creation, when heaven and earth are brought together, that there will no longer be any sea. So we have water, the seas, as a metaphor for blessing, as a metaphor for judgment or cleansing, for chaos or for being overwhelmed. 
And in our text today, we have two passages, one in Jonah and one in Matthew, where we have stories of chaotic waters. God has sent this young prophet Jonah to go to the Ninevites and preach a message of repentance. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And if you look up uh, lessons about the Assyrians, you'll learn that they were a violent people. And Jonah knew, as we see worked out in the book, that if Jonah goes and preaches a message of repentance to the Ninevites, God is probably going to show mercy to them. And Jonah does not want God to show mercy to these people. Instead of going northeast toward Nineveh, Jonah instead goes west or perhaps southwest to his preferred destination of Tarshish. And while on the sea in a boat, a great storm, a great tempest rises and causes the boat to surge and to quake. And the sailors gather that this is no ordinary storm, and each of them cries out to their own God. And Jonah recognizes that what's happening to them is a result of his own disobedience. He says, if you will only throw me into the heart of the sea, all of you will survive. Reluctantly and attempting to wash their hands of the guilt incurred by what they think will be bloodshed, uh, they reluctantly throw him overboard and Jonah finds himself immersed in these rough waters mere moments from his doom. In his 2007 film, The Darjeeling Limited, which weird people like me may enjoy, though as your pastor I do not officially recommend, Wes Anderson tells the story of three brothers who go on a spiritual journey in India. And the purpose of this journey is to reconnect with one another and, and especially to make peace with the wounds of their family of origin. And each of these sons is actively working out the trauma of, of a sudden loss of a family member and also just the grief surrounding the complications of the way that their family behaved together. And they work this, with this out in ways that are hilariously visible to the audience but invisible to themselves. There's a scene where they stop in a town and each of them independently goes and illegally picks up prescription drugs and they're sitting at a meal literally just swapping drugs. They're literally self-medicating. And what proves to be a dialogue of just comical understatement, one brother says to the other, why are we the way that we are? And another brother answers, maybe it has to do with how we were raised. There are times in life where we feel underwater. We feel like the torrents are sweeping over us. We're not only underwater, but we're underwater in a storm, and things are swirling about with such reckless frenzy that we can't tell up from down, left from right, dark from night. We don't even know the season that we're in. Things that were secure seem to be slipping out of our control. We can't catch a breath to save our life, and we genuinely wonder, are we going to make it? And like the brothers in the movie, sometimes we have these, these moments of self-awareness or situational awareness, and we find ourselves asking, why are things the way that we are, the way that they are? And like the brothers in the movie, we may find ourselves responding, maybe it has to do with the choices that I've made. Or perhaps we're in denial, like Principal Skinner on The Simpsons, who... I really enjoyed him saying, am I out of touch? Could it be me that's the problem? And then he self-assuredly resolves, no, it's the children who are wrong. Whether we own it or not in life, sometimes we find ourselves drowning in the chaotic waters of our own 
disobedience. Jonah is underwater because he has consciously departed from the path of wisdom. God has told him where to go, what to do, what to say. And Jonah says, nope. And he goes the opposite direction. Now Jonah, I can imagine, is finding himself in the middle of the sea, wondering, where's God in this? Or maybe in the middle of moments of difficulty or complication for us, we ask, where is God in this? Well, if we find ourselves in the chaotic waters of disobedience, one answer to that question might be, respecting our choices. This may be what Paul was getting at in Romans chapter 1 when he talked about God giving people over to the desires of their heart. I shared a couple of weeks ago that in the proclamation of Jesus, the proclamation of Jesus was centrally that the kingdom of God was at hand, that the kingdom of God was among you. He didn't merely preach that you should save up points with God that you can cash in later in life. So no, he says the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is in you. The kingdom of God is somehow a present tense reality with our experience of reality. So why the scriptures can say things like if you sow to the spirit, from the spirit you're going to reap. If you live in alignment with the rhythms and the rules and the shape of the kingdom, from the kingdom you're going to reap life in the age to come. And similarly, if you actively reject the way of the kingdom, as the, the epistle says, if you sow to please the flesh, from the flesh you'll reap destruction. It's kind of like, uh, I, I, I joked, I didn't plan the comment, but if we kind of anthropomorphized like the herbs growing in my backyard, I, I have these, these herbs growing and they've never done particularly well. And then we went on vacation and we paid our, our neighbor Henry to come over and water them and it turns out that they're a lot healthier when you water them. So I was thinking about, you know, going out to my mint and saying, all right, if Mr. Mint, you've got the choice in this matter, would you like to be watered today? And if mint were, you know, self-conscious, might say, eh, I don't think I'm in the mood today. Cool, I respect your choice. Come out the next day, Mr. Mint, how about some water today? Would you like some? Mm, I don't think so. And day goes on, days go by, Mr. Mint continues to reject my offer of water, and then I wonder if Mint is surprised me. He's like, I just feel really dry in my life right now. I just feel really brittle, like I'm easily offended. Things could break easily. And this is just what life is like in the present age. Those who sow to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap life in the age to come, and those who sow to please the flesh similarly. If you find yourself asking, why is everything so hard right now? In some cases, we might say, well, maybe it has to do with the choices that I've made. Now, if we shift, shift and look at the Gospel of Matthew, the, the text that we read just follows on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And they've been through a big event. Jesus, I'm convinced, is an introvert, needs some time alone and some time with his father. So he tells the disciples, y'all go hop on this boat. I'll meet you on the other side of the lake. The disciples obeying Jesus' instruction, hop on the boat, and they, and they go out into the middle of it. Now, the thing that you have to remember about the disciples, the disciples have made a voluntary choice to follow Jesus, that in choosing to become apprentices to this rabbi, they've done so at personal cost. Some of them have left vocations. Some of them have had older siblings who are like, my younger sibling is a dummy. That's what older siblings do, regardless. 
And so many of them have left familiarity, they have left comfort, they have left security. They're doing all the right and virtuous things, and Jesus tells them to get on the boat, and you know what happens? They still end up in the middle of a storm, fearing for their lives, calling out to their God. And it takes some living to get your brain around this reality that at times in life we find ourselves drowning in the chaotic waters, not of disobedience, but of obedience. Not long ago, a person said to me, John, if you had told me 10 years ago what my life would be like right now, I would be like, that is amazing. I have children, seriously? I have meaningful work, that's awesome. I'm getting to use my gift to serve other people regularly. I can't believe it. I get to take care of vulnerable people. That is unbelievable. All of these things are great. All of these things are amazing. These are the answers to prayer I was hoping for, and yet I still feel like I'm drowning. These kids need attention, and sometimes I don't have it in me to give them what they need. And these people I serve, sometimes I end up resenting. There's conflict at the dream job. I I just get worn out. Yes, it's an ocean of blessing, but does that make me feel any less like I'm drowning? It's a story of drowning in blessings management. I think a lesson for us in this is that for reasons that are good and bad and neutral, we are all at some point going to have to deal with the chaotic waters of life. And sometimes we suffer and things just really stink because we've been dummies. It's like, probably could have guessed that was going to happen. That was really really bad. Sometimes we suffer because of the choices we make that are destructive and foolish. But there are also times that we suffer not because we're foolish, but precisely because we've been walking in the path of wisdom. Jesus said to his disciples, Particularly because you are my disciples, you are going to have trouble in the world. Sometimes the trouble comes from wisdom, sometimes it comes from folly, and sometimes it just comes from reality. That our forebears rebelled against God in the garden, and it introduced moral evil and natural evil into our world, and sometimes stuff just happens. It's kind of like I have this image in my mind of being in a racquetball court and millions of bouncy balls just zooming off the wall, each of them, you know, uh, reflecting the consequences of human rebellion. And sometimes indiscriminately, not because you threw the bouncy ball, we're going to get hit and we're going to get taken out. And sometimes this happens in the world, and that's just the way it is until Jesus returns to renew and restore all things. In the wisdom literature of Israel, we have the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs says, look, if you are wise, God is going to bless you. You've got a golden road ahead of you. And then almost in reply, we have the book of Job, which says, yeah, but what about when life doesn't work out like that? And then we have the book of Ecclesiastes, which says, yeah, but none of this matters anyway. And then we've got the book of Song of Solomon, which is going in like a different PG-13 direction altogether. And then we have the Psalms, and the Psalms model for us this candid way of wrestling with God no matter what situation you're in or why you're in it. And Jonah, back in the water, finds himself swishing back and forth, ashamed of his disobedience, and he cries out to the Lord from the deep. 
as he sees the light fading and he finds himself sinking. And in the deep, in what would have surely been in the minds of the other sailors on the boat, the, the, the realm of the grave, in a space beyond salvation, the Lord meets him and creates for him a submarine sanctuary. Jonah spits and he sputters, and to his shock, he breathes, I'm alive. How am I alive? And as we go through Jonah chapter 2, his words flow from his lips like a psalm. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths. Interestingly, he doesn't say it's the sailors. He's saying, Lord, I know that this whole thing is one big struggle between me and you. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. He's saying, I'm a dead man, and yet I'm alive. I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. It says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. In his own deathbed confessional, Jonah turns away from the idol of control and the idol of prejudice. He didn't like those people. I don't want you to show mercy to those people. I don't want life on your terms. And in turning back to God, he turns expecting wrath. He turns expecting, I'm disappointed. And he turns back to the one he's afraid of and finds instead the one who loves him. I think about the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Where the son has squandered his resources, he's squandered his inheritance, and when he's run through all of them and realizes his only option is to trudge his way back home to his father, he knows he's coming home to anger and disappointment. And so every step of the way home, he's practicing his I'm sorry speech. And Jesus telling us this story to, to illustrate what his father is like says, and the father who saw his son from a long way off was, had a heart that was full of compassion and ran to meet his son. The son begins his I'm sorry speech and the father interrupts it, calling orders to the servant saying, put a ring on his finger and a robe around his shoulders and sandals on his feet and kill the fatted calf for this son of mine was dead, but now he is alive. He was lost, but now he's found. Jonah in the deep turns expecting to find a God who's disappointed and instead turns and finds a God who loves him. I can imagine that there are people in this room who you've made a series of choices that have gotten you in a place that you really, really don't want to be. 
And you may come to worship on Sundays because your family is here. There may be some kind of like inner draw to deal with the substance of your, your choices. And you're like, oh, you just haven't had the nerve to do it yet. It's very possible that you have made or you even will make some destructive choices in life. You may think that the things that you have done have rendered you too far gone to be saved, but I want to tell you that even in the chaotic waters of disobedience, reaping those things that you've sown, you are not beyond God's reach, you are not beyond God's redemption, and His arm is not too short to save. The Scriptures tell us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Job chapter 9, Yahweh, Israel's God, is said to be the one who's capable of treading on the waves of the sea. As Peter and the disciples brace themselves in the storm, they see in the distance Jesus walking on it. And Peter cries out, if it's really you, tell me to get out of the boat and walk towards you, to walk like you're walking in the middle of the storm. It's like he's saying, if you're really who you say you are, and you've really called us, we who have risked everything to follow you, then I need you to show me how to be like you. And Jesus honors his bold request, and Jesus beckons him to step out of the boat and onto the waves. Now, like tons and tons and tons of preachers and people who've just read the Bible, this strikes me, of course, the idea of getting out of the boat and walking on the water as a metaphor for the invitation to be an apprentice of Jesus. The invitation of Jesus in, in being his students and he our rabbi is for us to, in the, over the course of time and spending time with our teacher, to become like him. That's his vision for us. And if Israel's God, you know, foreseen in Job chapter 9, but seen most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ, comes walking on the water, then somehow we're meant to be right there with him, standing securely, even on the waves of uncertainty. To be on the water, if you'll follow my metaphor, to be on the water, but not immersed in the water, is to be in touch with the pains and the fears and the anxieties and the vulnerabilities that come with being a person, but not consumed by them. I think about David in the psalm that so many of us know, Psalm 23. It said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Well, I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who find themselves in the furnace in Babylon and yet they are not burnt. Or I think of Paul and Silas who are imprisoned and could face death, and yet there they are singing hymns of praise to God. Or I think of one of my favorite stories to come out of the first four centuries of the church in Carthage in North Africa, the story of those sisters, Perpetua and Felicity, a slave owner and her servant who were beloved to one another in Christ who when they walked in the arena to be martyred and, and given over to the wild beasts were described to be brilliant and of joyous countenance. They were walking on the water in it, but not consumed by it. Walking on the water is being at the bleeding edge of battle with that chaos that's represented in the seas and yet somehow above it. As long as Peter was able to keep his eyes fixed on Jesus, 
As long as he said, I'm not going to think too hard about how this actually works. I'm just going to keep my eyes on the one who beckoned me. He was able to do the impossible. But as soon as that part of his brain kicked in where he begins thinking logistics, he's like, this is literally violating the laws of the universe. How is this working? And as he looked and he saw how the winds were causing the waves to spew, he began to sink. And like Jonah, Peter cries out and Jesus mercifully saves him and says, where is your faith? Jesus wants to teach us to somehow be okay when things are not remotely okay. That Jesus, I believe that Jesus somehow wants to invite us to stand in a place of security even where we're standing, when the place we're standing is a place of uncertainty. And this comes in the process of apprenticing Jesus. I was mindful this week of the passage in Hebrews that says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because everyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Some of us have prayed. We've done the work. We've done our quiet times. We've done our apprentice groups. But we've not done it with any measure of trust that this is anything more than just like like a showcase in superficial spirituality. We've not encoded into our prayer, into our scriptures, into our engagement with life of other believers. There's actually a God who receives my worship and receives my prayers, and I believe that this God will reward me if I seek him. There's a vast difference between those who pray with trust and those who pray with no trust. To be on the waves but not consumed by them. To be in touch with the pain and the fear and the anxieties and the vulnerabilities of life but not to be overtaken by them requires our hearts to be trained as apprentices of Jesus. We need to be trained to believe in the one who exists and who rewards those who earnestly seek him. But we also need to be trained to live this kind of contingent, derivative life that I am meant to derive my strength and my capacity and my vision and my hope, not from my own heart, which is so fickle, but from the heart of God. I'm meant to live this contingent, dependent life. When I think about people who model this for well for me, there are lots of great people who are religious, lots of great people who are Christians, but... I wonder, are you overwhelmed by the number of true Christian practitioners? People who over the years are not getting like meaner in their faith, but are growing ever more joyful as their roots sink down into the soil that God is is, is cultivating in their lives. One of the people that's doing this for me, who's modeling for me a life of being trained to believe and to derive one's life and vision from God is Todd Hunter, who's the bishop of our diocese. We can talk about that another time. But uh, not terribly long ago, we had Bishop Todd here to Cornerstone, I think it was February, and asked him to preach. And the night before, I had Bishop Todd over to my house. Some people on our board and staff and others came over and 30 of us squeezed into a comically undersized living room for the event, and I forgot to turn up the air conditioner, so we're all sweating, but we're all hanging on every word that comes from this guy's mouth. And Todd is seated in my favorite favorite reading chair, and Emily and I, out of necessity and as a metaphor, are literally sitting at his feet asking him questions. And we're just asking Bishop Todd, 
Like, you have a lot of demands on you. To be a bishop, to be a true, like an overseer of the church of Jesus Christ in our world right now is a lofty, difficult calling. He's in the spotlight in some ways uh, that, that would be challenging to any person. He has a family. He has his own sense of, of calling. It's got to be a really tough job. How do you make it as a Christian? And as I've shared with you perhaps before, Todd began to just share with us, here's how I do my days. And he talks about waking up in the morning, and as his feet hit the floor, just asking himself in God's presence, how am I feeling right now? It's like, Lord, I'm, I'm a little bit grouchy. Or he's thinking about, you know, what, what did I lose sleep over? What am I dreading for today? What am I looking forward to today? And it's just as his feet are settling in and he's wiping, you know, the eye boogers out of his face. It's like, oh, okay, this is where I am. And just doing this in a casual and conversational kind of way with the Lord. He has a cup of coffee. He heads to the gym where he's a swimmer. He gets in the swim. He's got the pool. He's got those long lanes. And as he's, you know, slowly doing his strokes, with every stroke, there's a prayer, Lord, help me to have faithfulness to God, fidelity to my wife, Debbie. And with each arm, he has these things that he prays again and again and again. And he's, as he comes to the end of the lane, and it looks like there's a little bit of a cross warning the swimmer that you're about to run into the wall, and he gets ready for his turn. He sees the cross and thinks, Lord, help me to live a cruciform life, a life that is shaped by the gospel. Todd finishes his workout, he hops in the car, he turns on Pray As You Go, which is a lovely Catholic prayer app that I commend to you, listens to the prayers. He's got this token, this medallion thing in his pocket that just reminds him of who he wants to be in Christ. He comes into his office, he's, you know, 67 years old, he's got his hand on his heart and he just prays, finish strong, O oh my soul. As he's walking into meetings throughout the day, he said, Lord, help me to be a gracious and generative, spirit-filled presence to this person in this conversation. He just talked about just going through the everyday part of life. It's not like a five-hour Bible study and praying in tongues for an hour and a half and then getting the interpretation for the other half. And He's just walking through the day with the Lord. And there's something I would say of Todd that, Lord, <laughs> may it be true of me someday. That every time I'm around this guy, I'm seeing the joy of Christ. And it's someone who's the most brilliant person I've ever met, but he's one of the most Christ-like people I've met. And our pews are full of those kind of people who are never going to get up on stage and preach. It's not their calling. But who are learning to quietly apprentice Jesus in the everyday parts of life. Learning from him that there's a way to be okay even when things are not okay. Learning there's a way to stand securely even when you're on the waters of uncertainty. I remember a sister in the church who I asked her, how are you so okay right now? And she said, I just resolved I wasn't going to let anyone take my joy from me. This derivative life with God. I can imagine that there are people in this room who, are, for, who maybe because of your own destructive choices, you found yourself in a real pickle and you've been reluctant to cry out the Lord to the Lord, he is so eager to hear your cry and to receive your prayer today. For those of you who may feel like you're drowning in seas of blessing and you know, like this blessing management is what's difficult for you, the Lord nonetheless wants to receive your prayer. And for all of us who find ourselves simply fatigued with the difficulties of just being a person, it is the delight of our Father to hear our prayer. He who knows our needs before we ask. 
He wants to invite us into this way of being okay when things are not okay, to be secure even when things feel insecure and uncertain. The Apostle Paul was able to do this. He reflects this in Romans chapter 8. He said, I've just learned, I'm convinced that neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, neither death nor life, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is going to be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ our Lord. He says in Philippians, I have learned that there's a secret to being content no matter the situation. I can do that through Christ who lives in me. And the invitation of Jesus is not only to be our companion, to walk with us down the journey of life, but somehow one of the great mysteries of our faith is that as we have been baptized into Christ Jesus, that somehow there's a, we're already a dead man, already a dead woman, and we have been raised to newness of life. And it's not just that Jesus is our buddy over here, but somehow we are in Christ. And that's a message of good news. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, every one of us, one time or another this week, have felt the vulnerabilities of being alive. We have been frustrated by our own moral weakness. We've been frustrated by things that are in the news, chronic issues that seem like they'll just never get better. We grow frustrated and short-tempered with, with the people around us and, and even our reaction to the people around us. And Lord, it is hard to be a person it's both hard to be wise and it's also hard to be foolish. So we ask that you would mercifully lend us your hand. I pray, Lord Jesus, that the Spirit would so stir in us that we would feel the divine ear beckoning us to pour forth speech. And to those of us who find ourselves like Jonah in the chaotic waters of disobedience, that you would give us the courage to repent, to turn to you, and to look to you with faith who receive us as your children with love. And to all are like the disciples who find ourselves drowning in the good and the indifferent that we do in life, I pray that you would show us your mercy and lend us a hand. Lord, I'm mindful of the, the friend who said that our faith needs something to do and something to touch. And today, Lord Jesus, may our doing to come forward and receiving at the table and our touching and receiving the Eucharist, I pray that you would cause this action encoded with faith to be efficacious in our life. Pray that you pour out your spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Lord Jesus, as we receive, do the things that we cannot do. Forgive the sinner, heal the sick, Plant faith in the heart of the one who doubts and unite the church. Send us in your name and with your power that we may be for a world that is perishing the aroma of Christ. So pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.